to take advantage of this uh, unusual opportunity to um, be in a place uh, and having a time that is supportive and inviting of our con- contemplation. Um, Buddha said, we've been doing this thing a long time, this birth and death thing. Uh, that if you were to, uh, that, uh, if, if just from the lives we've led, if you were to kind of uh, pile up the bones, and he, he's very thorough, he said, and, and if they didn't c- decay, they would just make mountains and mountains. He said, from the tears that we've shed through this round of birth and death, of rebirth. It would uh, fill the oceans just from our lives, the tears of grief and disappointment and sorrow for the, dis- for the things not going the way we want, for the loss of our loved ones. And uh, so, you know, there's the opportunity to question, hmm, what is going on? It's not that we're trying to stop something, but to be interested really to give ourselves the opportunity to be with, investigate, looking again, this experience, being interested in our life. In meditation we have the opportunity to listen into, to look into, with a minimum of uh, distraction, a minimum of other people wanting us to be this or that. We've been we're offering each other permission. We've built a good foundation, though we might not think so. We might think, oh, God, my samadhi, look at them, they're sitting there like statues. Look at me all over the place. Believe me, it's a lot more raggedy inside than it is what we look on the outside. If you, that person that you think is so peaceful, if they put a me- megaphone on their heart, they might not be as peaceful as you think. We all have stuff, but we have collectively generated quite a bit of composure. Yes, I could have more. Yes, we could have. We can always have more. And it's useful to keep deepening our capacity to sustain presence with an in-breath and an out-breath. and to deepen our capacity to relax and be filled with the moment, to be at ease. And we will continue to, to do that, but I encourage us not to be so fixated on getting more samadhi, more samadhi, more samadhi, and not to, not to also have moments of using the gatheredness and collectedness that we have to reflect on the nature of things. Samatha Vipassana, because they're two separate words, they, they, they sound so separate. There's even different schools, Samatha schools, meditation and Vipassana traditions. The Samatha people might look, look at those wise reflectionists over there thinking they're reflecting when their minds are just wandering all over the place. <laughs> And then the wise reflectionists, the vipassaninis, as some people call them, 
Vipassa ninis <laughs> are looking, oh yeah, those Samatha people, all they're doing is just kind of getting stuck in bliss. <laughs> I don't know that many people, that's a big problem, but you know, <laughs> stuck in blues. But there is such a thing, because I've seen it in myself, of being so addicted to the little bit of peace and wanting more and wanting more, that we, we, we don't realize that Samatha Vipassana work in tandem. They were sometimes compared to two oxen working in a team, pulling the plow, cultivating the ground. Inside that doesn't have some samatha, some steadiness, then is not really looking into, seeing into the true nature. It's just basically believing our opinions. It's this way, it's that way. Inside, it, just as if we're in the old way of doing science, when I was going to school, we would have our microscopes and our desks and slides and drops of water and we could focus in and steady, we could look into the water and then see whew, all the things inside the water, the organisms, the cells. But it requires some steadiness to get a true image. If one's head's moving all around, one gets a false image. <coughs> Insight needs the stead, some steadiness. And calm, deep calm, stable calm, needs some wisdom. It's not just a question of willfully. There's a kind of samadhi in that, but it's very brittle, very tense, and you know, woe unto you who disturbs a person that's in that kind of samadhi. You disturb them. Why am I samadhi? I've told you, interrupting my peace. That's why vitaka vichara. And this is the, the discussion of what is jhana. Even the first deep level of samadhi, vitaka, that's the yang or yang. I'm learning a new way of talking. The, the southern expression, which is because of yang. <laughs> yang. Vitaka is that steady and willful, but the vichara is the receptive feeling into exploring, and then there's a feedback loop, sensing too much energy, too little energy. What establishes that deep level of uh, calm, remember, is the training ourselves to be sensitive to the whole body and then exploring, feeling into the, remember the bathman, the water, the gritty bits, calls attention. That's the wise wisdom. Clear comprehension is recognizing that restriction, inflammation, deadness in an area, calls attention. So it, it, it gives rise to an adjustment, a tuning, 
echoing and breathing into the restriction. Then widening the awareness so that it holds the whole body and that's where the healing principle comes in. Because when one holds the whole body, one can notice the left side, the right side, how there are different resonances. And just holding that, noticing right side, left side, or hands or feet, because it's within the unified field, those different so-called discrete bits of the body communicate each other because they're within a unifying bowl, sphere, awareness. Vitaka, vichara, work together. Or Ajahn Chah to describe the relationship of Samatha Vipassana like a knife traditional knife. The, the blade has a sharp side, yes, for cutting, but the, you can sharpen that blade because of the thick back, stable strength of the back of the knife. The thing can be sharpened. No, 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 I don't like the back. I like the edge. I want the edge. Cutting it. Just like I like the Kitty saw all the outbreaths as a drag. I like the in-breath, the inspiration. <coughs> the two work together at Samatha Vipassana. We can emphasize one a little more than the other. When our Samatha gets too divorced from, it, from its reflective partner, then we get so irritated, we always want more, we're always trying to get more, and then we get um, refreshed, there's some healing, and then we get thrown uh, out of retreat, we get lost again, and then we... Life is hell, and then we go back to retreat. And that's, that's still skillful, it's fair enough, but Ajahn Chah says that's a bit like a, a criminal that has a good lawyer. <laughs> that we use meditation like that. We find ourselves in trouble, and we cling to it. And then we find ourselves free. And we get thrown back in jail again and we call the lawyer, get me out of here. That's a, you know, it's useful enough. But, but we're still not noticing the transitions, not noticing how we get into trouble, not really using our, our wisdom as well. So Ajahn Chah, yes, encourages us to keep deepening our samadhi, but don't be afraid to use our insight. He said, actually, even if you have enough samadhi to read a book, you can be enlightened. And that's not saying we shouldn't keep deepening it. But to, sometimes we can, even if we're hurting right now, gosh, I'm, why am I suffering? Rather than just compulsively, I've got to get more, so I've got to get rid of these distracting thoughts, got to get more concentrated. With his, why are they making the schedule like this? I don't know. I got to talk to them. I got to make a note to myself. Talk to them about the schedule. <laughs> more, more. You can ask the question: Is there suffering here? Is there, is there suffering? And to notice, oh, yeah. And as we notice that, well, what's giving rise to the suffering? Because it shouldn't be this way. I should have more samadhi, and this shouldn't be, and that shouldn't be. Want the samadhi? That memory of how calm I was on that retreat two and a half years ago. I think it was July, maybe it was August. It was amazing. 
and this is not right, and we think, ah. And in that moment of recognizing that, that clinging to how it should be, that pushing away and letting that be, we can taste release, peace. So the two are close uh, together, this steadying, but also reflecting. And, and today as we, we, we deepen more the reflective activity, we're going to be looking at the, the um, nature of phenomena. And uh, the changing nature. That might seem really obvious. We all, everyone in the room would get 100 out of 100 on a multiple choice test. Is the daytime permanent or impermanent? <laughs> <laughs> it's the rainy season in Cozina Is your complexion permanent or <laughs> We would all get 100 out of 100, mostly. But the Buddha talked about the immense importance of, uh, of really, in a moment, not just thinking it, but being in contact with it, noticing, like right now, the impermanent nature of the Monday morning instruction. Sounds coming and going of the talk intermixed with the attention moving to notice the traffic and maybe the attention shifting being called to a sensation in our body somewhere or maybe a thought mm, where's he going with this one or even in our calming practice the Buddha talked about. We can even stay right with our usual breathing in, breathing out, steady. But as we breathe in and as we breathe out, being aware of ahnicca, it's not certain, it's not permanent. Just being aware of the flickering sensation. The Buddha talked about the fruitfulness of good karma when we're generous, when we keep the precepts, which is very important. It's a great offering. When we make offerings to saints and sages, when, we, when we're really serving and generous, that he talks in a very graduated way about how fruitful, how good that karma is. But right at the very end of the list, this is after one has done huge acts of generosity and service and, and giving restraint so that one is not harming anyone. And he talks about how fruitful in an increasing way each one is. But then right at the end, he says, as great as all this might be, it would be even more fruitful still if one would develop the perception of impermanence to notice impermanence just for the time it takes to snap one's fingers. Mm. 
he's encouraging us. So even when you we get really distressed, oh, the practice is not going good, look how calm they are, look how supple that one's body is. They're having insights, I'm not. Even a finger snap in that, they're having insights, I'm not. Impermanent. No, 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 you're not understanding, kiddies are all. They're having insights and I'm not. Impermanent. No, 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 you're not getting the message. This is big. Look, at they're making progress. I'm stuck. Impermanent. Even a moment, it starts making a hairline fracture in the concretization, the objectification, the making real all these forms and feelings and thoughts that really seem like they're me and mine and this and that, and even a moment of noticing what seems it's this way in a moment when it's, it's otherwise, it's not certain. Very important. This is the key to all the deep insights of the Buddha, of the great disciples. And when we notice all these things that we're wanting, the pleasures, even when something is really nice, tastes good, is beautiful, is peaceful, can we even in that moment notice something changing? Because if we do, that has huge impacts on the, the idea that I'm going to get to success, I'm going to get to happiness and keep it. We notice that little bit of shifting and changing. A disenchantment starts to happen. Here's the Buddha talking about the elements of our existence. If monks, this is from the discourse, the Anattalakana Sutta, if form were self, if this body were self, it would not lead to suffering, to affliction. It would be possible to determine form. Let my form be this way. Let me be taller, let me be shorter. Let my form not be us. But because form is anatta, it's not self. It leads to dukkha, to affliction. It's not possible to determine form, let my form be thus. Same with feelings and moods. For example, Ajahn Chah said, if, if anger was really me, then you could just say, make it this way or make it that way. But we can't. Feeling is not self. Perception is not self. Volition. Consciousness. Not self. What do you think, monks, disciples, is form? like the breath, like the body, like strength, like a sound, is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Venerable Sir, they answered. Is what is impermanent dukkha or sukkha? If something's impermanent, 
it's there and then it's gone. Is it reasonable to say this is totally satisfying? This is something that is happiness? A beautiful sound? Happy for a moment? Beautiful meal? Winning the National Invitational Wrestling Championship? Which is wonderful, but is it also dukkha? Or is it happiness forever and ever? Is what is impermanent, said the Buddha, is it dukkha? Subject to change? And something that is subject to change and, and, and goes, is it uh, fit to be regarded, said the Buddha, this is mine, this is me, this is myself? No. Then he went through feelings, perceptions, tendencies, moments of consciousness. Or in another discourse, the Buddha emphasized this again and again. Form is impermanent. What is impermanent is dukkha. Dukkha means not, not perfect, not reliable. We can, we can, yet we try to get to a successful feeling and we take that successful, pleasant feeling, want to stay there. But if we can see that it's impermanent, then dukkha can also mean it's, it's, it's not what we thought it was. Not fixed. Not satisfying. This is not a value judgment against it. But if we're leaning on a pleasant feeling and just assuming it's me and mine, then when it collapses, there's distress. So in our, our practice today, which is, is what's called the fourth foundation of mindfulness, we were noticing some yesterday, the nature of the moods which shape awareness, desire and aversion, restlessness, dullness, doubt, the heart when it's drawn out in desire, recoiling in aversion. Today we're going to really reflect more deeply on what's called the awareness of Dhamma, the, the nature of conditions. And we can do that staying just right with, uh, we can keep it really simple. We can still keep deepening our capacity to stand and sit, walk, to be with the breathing. But uh, in the discourse on the, the mindfulness of the breath, when the Buddha talks about how to be with the breathing in a way that fulfills this fourth foundation of the mindfulness, this contemplation of Dharma, he talks about, I shall breathe in contemplating impermanence. Breathe out contemplating impermanence. Breathing in as we're in touch and relaxing with the fact that every instant it's different. And the sensations, the way, the place in which we think this is the breath. 
As we breathe in, can we notice that we don't have to make a change. It changes, pulses, vibrates. The in empties, finishes, turns into the out. Breathing in, contemplating change. Breathing out. And as we're breathing in, contemplating the change, we can even use, if we still use our vitaka, our word that reminds us to keep returning, and vichara, to keep receiving, we can then just notice, even breathing in blood, breathing out toe, notice that the thoughts are changing, and the attention is shifting. And then even as we widen the attention, we're sensitive to the whole body breathing in and out, that field of sensations, like a field of wheat or grass blowing, shimmering, shifting in the breeze. Breathing in and out, even with an open awareness that also receives the sounds and any other thoughts and moods. This moment, this reality as we breathe in, noticing even the way we attend to it is shifting, uncertain. Practice being vulnerable to that, resting with it. And even if we are reacting to it, and oh, I'm not sure I'm giving it, letting that be included, let it also reveal its ever-changing nature. And to trust, yes, this is calling upon some faith, but it's Encouraging us to trust this is important. That when, in a moment, this reality, my life, we're talking about here, it's not going good. That very moment when we, we can even let go of the breath for a moment if we wish, my life, it's not going good. And we be aware of that feeling tone, that thought impermanent as we breathe in and out through it. And what is impermanent? Then a disenchantment, the enchantment of solidity, the enchantment of all the real stuff being out there, the objects of the heart, starts to fade. Disenchantment. And what is called viraga. If we really walk up to a waterfall, and, and a beautiful waterfall, bring it over here, it's mine. You can go up to a waterfall, but you can't own it. You can call it, it's on my property. Don't tamper with my waterfall. But when we go up to it, the spray, the torrent, can you get hold? One can be in awe of it, appreciate it. And as one relinquishes views and opinions of ownership, 
the ever-changing torrent reveals itself and in not grasping one notices that peaceful stillness within which the waterfall manifests. So we can practice breathing in and out noticing change and also if we notice change in and out noticing dukkha not big, heavy suffering, but the dukkha, the fact that anything that's changing, we can't really, it's not dependable. So why call it mine? Well, why try to own it? Breathing in and out, just, this is not a rejection of anything, but a recognition. Ah, it's, it's not what I think it is asking conditions that are ever-changing to be something different. Ajahn Chah said it's like boxing a tree. You're going to lose. You're going to get hurt. And he said it's like asking a duck why it isn't a chicken. It's insane. Breathing in and out, contemplating viraga, a disenchantment, a fading of our imagination. This is the useful weariness. If we still imagine, no, the next conversation, the next cappuccino, the next victory, the next, it's and it's not that we judge life, but the, the weariness of realizing if we're continually going, that breathing in and out, noticing change, leads to a helpful, a healthy world weariness. And that then can lead to breathing in and out, noticing what's called niroda, a moment where you're not clinging anymore, a moment where that, we're just being, and that's the touching of the peaceful, nature that's always here and now. And then we can breathe in and out what the Buddha calls giving it all back, relinquishing. It's related to what Tanisha spoke about the other night, Nikama. That relinquishment, but in this profound contemplative way it's called Patrinisaga. It's called just giving back. Ah, this claim of owning it all. So it's not, Vipassana is not far away from samatha. You can still sitting and walking, calming, breathing, but the, the core, the most important, all the other profound understandings of not-self and emptiness come out of this recognition of change. Especially, do it with our thoughts. But if we too quickly do it with our thoughts and haven't, established it with the body, then we can sometimes just get lost in thinking. So let's begin, because we've put so much work on being with the body <coughs> and in our yoga practice, we'll be doing it too. Really breathe in and out, making sure we can sustain that connection with impermanence. Breathing in, recognizing the ripple, the shifting out so that our attention gets more continuous. 
And as we're really present, and then it's quite awesome when we notice what's really happening here. The whole world is singing, vibrating, shimmering, shifting, recreating itself. I shall breathe in and out contemplating change. I shall breathe in and out contemplating disenchantment, dispassion, what the Buddha called the fading. I shall breathe in and out contemplating cessation. When we're not grasping or rejecting anymore, then we have these moments of touching peace that's always here. I shall breathe in and out contemplating patinisaga, giving back, letting go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.